I have, uh, I have two Sundays in the year that, um, don't tell anyone this, but I have two Sundays in the year that are my favorite uh, Sundays of the year. Uh, the sermon's being recorded, so I guess that's going to be out there now. Um, uh, this is one of them, and the other one is uh, Christ the King Sunday, which happens in November, and they're both Sundays where we basically celebrate how Jesus is King, that Jesus is, uh, is above all. Um, so this one is Ascension Sunday, where we talk about how Jesus, uh, this story from Acts, where he gets taken up into heaven and uh, ends up seated at God's right hand. Um, I don't know why these Sundays are so appealing to me. Uh, perhaps it's a reminder that uh, Jesus is in control, and I can be thankful that I don't have to be in control, and, uh, and I cannot worry about uh, that, the, that the world is in Jesus' hands. Um, so, so maybe that's part of it. Uh, some of it might also be that I, I kind of like the traditional hymns that we sing on these two Sundays often. Um, Crown of the Many Crowns, which we're singing at the end, is one of my favorites. And uh, so it might be just about the music as well. Um, so this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the ascension and, and really what it means, trying to get a grasp of uh, or an understanding of the ascension. And I actually went back and uh, read into uh, John Calvin talking about the ascension in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he had to say this. I'm going to quote a couple of sections from the Institutes to you. Um, he said this generally about the ascension of Jesus into heaven. He withdrew his bodily presence from our sight, not to cease being present with believers still on their earthly pilgrimage, but to rule heaven and earth with a more immediate power. Right? So you get what he's saying there? It's not that he was leaving people behind, but that his rule is actually more immediate from heaven than it could ever be if he'd remained on earth. Really interesting. Um, he goes on, uh, Calvin has a, a section that um, talks about the benefits imparted to our faith by Christ's ascension. And to me, this is quite a fascinating thing because he's not just talking about, well, uh, here's what the ascension is, but he's talking about, well, what are the benefits to us, the fact that he ascended? And we often don't think about that at all because we emphasize so much his death and resurrection. Then, then you know, 40 days later, well, and then he went up to heaven. And let's move on to Pentecost next week. Um, that's kind of our, our normal pattern. But he has this great little section in the Institutes that kind of go through. And he has three things. So I'm just going to go over those three things with you. The first one is that Jesus opens heaven to us. And so this is how Calvin phrases it. He says, since he entered heaven in our flesh, as if in our name, it follows, as the apostle says, that in a sense, we already sit with God in the heavenly places in him. And that's a quote from Ephesians 2, verse 6. So that we do not await heaven with a bare hope, but our head already possesses it. Right? So when he says our head, he means Jesus is the head of the church. So the head of the church is already in heaven. So the church already possesses heaven, is what he's saying. So he's gone in our flesh. He, he went there as his body. It's not that Jesus' spirit got taken up to heaven. It's Jesus' resurrected body gets taken up to heaven. And it opens up heaven to us. 
So this is the first thing that Calvin says is a benefit that's given to us by Christ's ascension. The second one is that Jesus, in the presence of the Father, is our advocate and intercessor. And we might have heard about this before, that it's kind of like Jesus is sitting next to the Father, and we will pray, and we pray in Jesus' name quite often. And it's as though Jesus is listening and kind of whispering to the Father and saying, oh, yeah, well, let's pray for Jen's brother in his house. Um, and, uh, and Jesus is interceding on our behalf as our advocate with the Father. But Calvin has a fantastic way of phrasing this that connects it to our own salvation and our own reconciliation with God. And I want to read this to you. So this is how he talks about Jesus being our advocate and intercessor. Jesus turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. I just think that's beautiful because he's saying, instead of God looking at our sins, he's looking at Jesus. When he thinks of us, he looks at Jesus. That's how Jesus is our intercessor. That's a fascinating way of thinking about it. Uh, the third way that he talks about um, uh, the third benefit, actually it's a whole list, um, is this. So he, he talks about uh, Jesus ruling, essentially being, being the major benefit toward us for the ascension. Uh, he quotes again from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. So in other words, Jesus holds captivity captive. Okay, so in other words, we're no longer captive anymore. Jesus has captured it. So we're not captive to sin. So he says this, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and despoiling his enemies, he enriched his own people, and daily lavishes spiritual riches upon them. He therefore sits on high, transfusing us with his power, that he may quicken us to spiritual life sanctify us by his spirit, adorn his church with diverse gifts of his grace, keep it safe from all harm by his protection, restrain the raging enemies of his cross and of our salvation by the strength of his hand, and finally hold all power in heaven and on earth. It's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? I love that, that phrase where he sits on high transfusing us with his power. Like think of a blood transfusion, right? His power is being transfused to us. And that's done so that he can quicken us or bring us to spiritual life, sanctifying us by his spirit, giving us his diverse gifts of grace and keep us safe from all harm by his protection as he restrains the enemies of his cross and our salvation. Calvin continues on, and he says that he does all of this until he shall lay low all his enemies, who are our enemies too, and complete the building of his church. This is the true state of his kingdom. This is the power that the Father has conferred upon him until in coming to judge the living and the dead, he accomplishes his final act.
Jesus rules over all. And he does all of these things for us, for his church. Now, our, our misunderstanding of this third point from Calvin started uh, way before Calvin ever wrote it. Our misunderstanding of how Jesus rules and what this might mean to receive Christ's power and to stand against the enemies of the cross in Christ, I think it started on that day when Jesus ascended, maybe even before, but certainly the disciples who were there with Jesus as he ascended didn't, wouldn't have quite understood Calvin's point. The disciples ask, as Jesus is about, just before Jesus is about to go up, they ask, Lord, is this when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They misunderstand something in this question. Now, what, what's the nature of their misunderstanding? Actually, most biblical commentators, you might be not very surprised by this, but they don't agree about what the disciples misunderstand. Um, some say that the disciples have, have missed that the kingdom is actually for, for more than Israel. So some commentators say that. Most say that the disciples are still thinking of an earthly kingdom. And so they've missed, the, they've missed that Jesus' kingdom is heavenly or spiritual. So they're asking, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Their problem, some say, well, it's actually more than Israel. Others say, no, it's not even about Israel. It's about a spiritual or heavenly kingdom. And some say that the only mistake the disciples made was one of timing. So they, they're saying, Lord, is now the time? And Jesus' response is, it's not for you to know the time that's set by the Father. So he's not disagreeing with their premise that the kingdom will be restored for Israel, but he's saying, now's not the time, and it's not for you to know when it is. And now maybe the disciples misunderstood all of these things. But I, I think what's interesting about these three things that they perhaps did misunderstand is that there's something not right about them when they're framed as an either-or statement. But all of them are characteristics of the kingdom when we see both sides of them being true. So the kingdom is either for Israel or the rest of the world. No, the kingdom is for both. So the question might not be, Lord, when are you going to restore the, the kingdom for Israel? It would be for Israel and everywhere else. It's both things. The kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. They're, they're misunderstanding that. It's just, it's heavenly or it's spiritual. Actually, it's both. And the final promise is not that we will all be simply taken up to heaven as Jesus was. The final promise is that the kingdom of heaven will be fully realized on earth, that there will be this descent of heaven coming to earth. And if you, if you think, well, that's not quite right. I think it's all, actually all about is getting into heaven, isn't it? Well, please pray the Lord's Prayer. Because what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. That's praying for the kingdom to come and be on earth. It's both. It's both things, though, right? It's the hoped-for physical reality of the kingdom of God on earth, but, but it's also the heavenly kingdom where Christ is present now, seated at God's right hand, and it's the spiritual reality of the kingdom that we do experience now. 
What about the misunderstanding of time? Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? No, it's not. The time is not now. But, but some believe actually that it is, that the time is now. And the truth is that in some ways it is both. The kingdom is now and it is also not yet. We have a reigning king on the throne of heaven. And we have this experience of being his subjects. We also experience the kingdom of God as a spiritual reality in part now. But we are also very aware that the kingdom is not yet. Not everything has been set right on this earth. That's painfully obvious. The kingdom is still to come, but the kingdom is also now. Both things. What's interesting about the disciples' misunderstandings, if they are in fact there in the story, is that they help us, about, uh, they help us learn about the nature of the kingdom. But the misunderstanding by the church over the centuries in this story was not actually about the disciples. It was around Jesus' answer to their question about the kingdom. And the misunderstanding of the church has sadly had devastating effects. Jesus tells them, it's not for you to know the times that the Father has set by his own authority. What is Jesus saying here? We'll focus on the time, but Jesus is really specific in how he says this. That the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, God is in control. Not you, disciples. Not us. Not the church. God is in control. God has the authority. And then Jesus shifts around and says, but you will be my witnesses. And you will go, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. Not, you will make people convert. Not, you will attempt to civilize and assimilate people into your own version of the kingdom. Only you will be my witnesses. And yet somehow the church took this and turned it into what, was a, what ended up being a theology of progress and expansion. What's a theology of, of progress and expansion? Well, there was this great belief and you can find this right up until uh, well, into the like well into the 19th century, up into the 20th century as well, that the prevailing belief was that the kingdom of God was being built over time. Okay, so things were getting better and better, and we would add more people to God's kingdom through progress and expansion. And so the church was leading the way in trying to go out to the nations and convince people you need to believe in Jesus. And at times in our history, we did that through threat rather than through witness. And so you can, you can trace that history in some of the darkest times or the times of the Crusades. In Canada, our own difficulty with this has been centered around residential schools and our relationship with First Nations people. That the approach was not about witness necessarily, 
the approach was, we are above you and you need to be like us to be the church. Now that's a broad, sweeping generalization of all of Christian history. So I'm not saying that there weren't pockets of fantastic things and that God wasn't doing things. Of course God was working in all of that. And there were millions of people who came to hear about Jesus for the first time through that. And that's a good thing and to be celebrated. Yet our way about it as church and as society, I don't think was what Jesus had in mind, really, when he said, go out into the world and be my witnesses. That theology of, of progress and expansion really broke down eventually, and I think a big part of that was World War I and World War II. Um, when World War I happened, it was called the war to end all wars, if you've heard that phrase, right? And the reason, one of the theological reasons was that that shouldn't have really happened because we are on this track of progress. The kingdom of God is being built, everything's getting better in our society, and um, people are able to uh, do more now and, and be better people, and this is all God's work, and it's all kingdom work. And then World War I happened, and the response to that was, well, that was a mistake. That shouldn't have happened, and so now we've learned, and it will never happen again, and then World War II happened. And theologically, the church had a real crisis to deal with because how is it if we're, as a society, moving toward the kingdom, how can we let six million Jews or more be slaughtered? Our theology didn't have a category for that anymore. And we're well beyond that now. And so we no longer really have this theology of progress and expansion. You might still find it, but it really kind of broke down. You can find this, uh, this kind of theology in some of our hymns, even some of the hymns that I really, really like, where if you read carefully, you'll see, oh, yeah, this is all about we're going to go out and we're going to... It's not overt, but it's often we're going to go out, we're going to tell people a message, and... Uh, they'll convert, and then the kingdom of God will be built, and it'll be fantastic. You find that in lots of classic hymns. I can almost guarantee you that the vast majority of those were not written before 1940, or after 1940. They were all written before. Now, that's kind of a historical answer as to why did that theology break down. But I kind of think one of the reasons why it really broke down was because it was based on human work. That the church was convinced that if we work together toward progress, that we will build the kingdom of God. Yet the scriptures never say that we will build the kingdom of God. The scriptures always say that Jesus will build the kingdom of God. Even in... Uh, in John Calvin's uh, point number three about what the ascension gives us in terms of benefits, he insists that kingdom building and church building is based solely on the work of Christ from on high, seated at God's right hand. The third point is entirely focused on what God is doing, and Calvin just ignores what we are doing. He doesn't refer to it. In that third point, 
what Calvin ultimately goes to is Christ returning to judge the living and the dead. And this is exactly the same event that the angels point to at the end of the ascension story, where the angel says, this Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's the end of our reading, Acts 1, verse 11. The church uh, used a lot of uh, militaristic imagery as well in this idea of progress and expansion, right? We're going to go and conquer for Christ. And uh, and we really shy away from that now because we're, we're worried about that kind of imagery. And it doesn't sound very good to talk about how we're going to go and conquer. Yet there is a lot of biblical imagery about this. But I would want to argue that most of the time that biblical imagery is actually about God conquering, Jesus conquering, and his enemies are sin and death. Not people, not other people. Jesus' return, final return, that's the the true invasion, if you're going to want to use military imagery. That's the true invasion. And our job is to witness. Our job is to to point to Jesus, not to implement a plan of progress. Our job is just to point to Jesus. He's the one who's doing it. We can encourage one another. We can tell other people. But it's not in the end about us figuring out, okay, how are we going to build the church for God? No, no, no. Jesus is going to build the church. We might have the joy of receiving some of the benefits of that happening. That'd be great. But Jesus is going to build the church, and all we can do is point to Jesus. Now, how do we do that? How how do you, how can we be witnesses? We're sometimes scared of that word witness because we we think about it in a a charismatic sort of way uh, or something like that, which, which I think is fine. Um, but witness just means to give testimony. Think about it in a courtroom. It's somebody who knows some facts, who's seen something, experienced something, and they give testimony to, to what they've experienced or seen. And then people have to weigh the evidence and decide what they think about it. That's kind of what I'm talking about. How then to be a witness? Um, I, I think this might be rooted in what the Greek word is in this section and throughout the New Testament. The Greek word for witness, does anyone know it uh, off the top of your heads? Uh, Martyr. Martyr, or martyros. But martyr is basically the root word for witness. Now, we we have a concept of what a martyr is, as someone who dies for the faith. But But I think that's actually a helpful thing to know about this word witness, because... The concept itself of dying for the faith or dying for the gospel, that itself points to Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Right? Our, our primary message is about this one who died on a cross for the sake of the world and then is risen and is ascended on high. Now, it's, we have to be really clear that 
it's Jesus who's done that, and it's Jesus who has ascended on high, and we most definitely have not done that. We have not uh, died on the cross, and we have not ascended on high. We're not the rulers, and we're not the ones in charge. But at the same time, this idea of a witness or a martyr, our witness should be, ought to be cruciform, right? Our witness should be shaped by the cross, by what Jesus did. That's what martyrs, their witness was shaped by the death of Jesus Christ. And that's quite a different idea than, than coming in conquest, where the message might be convert or you will die. The message is, I'm willing to die for your sake. That's a very different message, isn't it? I heard a, a story, and I can't uh, verify its truth, but you can listen to it. And it's about the first missionaries that went to Korea. Um, there was several different waves of missionaries. And the first waves of missionaries that arrived in Korea, they were killed on the spot before they had a chance to do anything. And what did the church do? The church sent another wave of missionaries to, to Korea, and they were killed on the spot. And then a third wave of missionaries came, and someone finally asked them, we keep killing you. Why do you keep coming? And that was their opportunity then to tell about Christ. What if you were in the first or second set of missionaries? I mean, the third set, I mean, isn't that great? You know, Korea, the Presbyterian Church in Korea, that's the largest Presbyterian denomination in the world. We're tiny here in Canada. I mean, if you're the third set of missionaries, isn't that fantastic? You had a great time. They heard you, they listened to you, had a conversation about Jesus, but sometimes you're the first set of missionaries dying without ever really having to even talk about the message. Yet they're all witnesses. They're all martyrs, right? That's a, a cruciform witness. I mean, we're probably not going to actually be killed for our faith in Canada. But are we willing to die for others, to put others first, to have a servant mentality when we share faith? Are we willing to let our faith sharing be shaped by the cross? It can be hard to figure out exactly how we do that. My preference is always to try to put grace first, to always try to lead with grace. Or another way to, to think about this is remember the order of these three words. Love, listen, proclaim. Don't put the proclaim first. Listen to the people first. Listen to the person you're having a conversation with. Listen to their objections. Listen to their ranting or raving about why would God ever let this happen to 
this person, or why does God let bad things happen to good people? Let them say it. Love them. And then take that opportunity to proclaim, to talk about the Jesus that you know, the Jesus of love and compassion and care. Um, I think uh, the, the prayer that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, I think captures this fairly well. It's a very familiar prayer. Many of you will likely know it. Um, I went and looked it up this week and discovered it's, it's not St. Francis's prayer at all. Um, and uh, I think it was first discovered, it's an anonymous source, it was first discovered uh, around 1912 or 1914. So, uh, I think we like things to be older sometimes, uh, but, uh, but it is still a fantastic prayer. Um, there, it became very, very popular actually during World War I, um, where it did get attributed to St. Francis and kind of got passed around. Um, and when you know that context of the prayer, you realize it's a prayer really for peace. And, um, and so knowing the context that this was being prayed by soldiers in, in, in a time of war is quite interesting. Um, but I also think this is a, a prayer that applies for us in how we talk about our faith and how we are witnesses for the faith that resides within us um, and uh, how we point to Jesus in those conversations that we may have. So let's pray that prayer. I'll invite you to pray with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Amen. <laughs>